So having said that, turn with me please in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. The Gospel of Mark chapter 10, we'll be thinking together and looking together at verses 32 through 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And we're thinking this morning about leading by serving, the paradox of advancing in Christ's kingdom. Leading by serving, the paradox of advancing in Christ's kingdom. Now, on the front end, I want to state that this passage is not entirely about leadership. Many have taken this passage and over-torqued it to make it all about servant leadership and all about kind of organizational theory and all about how we are to function in leadership context. And as you'll see, I do think that we, we certainly pick up on that from this passage as we look at what Christ says about his kingdom and about stature and status in his kingdom. But I don't want to over-torque this passage and, and make it all about organizational leadership. That's not what I think we see here. The passage indeed builds to verse 45, where it culminates with this great statement about the mission of our Lord to come and to not be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I was reflecting on this passage in recent days, and I was wondering, have I preached this passage at Midwestern Seminary before? And everyone who preaches a lot knows that, that feeling of wondering. So I began to check, and I realized that I preached this passage, my very first commencement, uh, December of 12, in the old chapel, which is now the Spurgeon Library. And uh, I, I remembered as I, as I was reflecting through those notes that in my notes, I made a comment to those graduates, something about, you should toss your resume to the wind, and you should drink a six-pack of Red Bull and just preach the gospel wherever God calls you. No, that's not the funny part. The funny part is... I got a letter in the mail the next week from a sweet old lady, by faith, I'm going to say sweet, who rebuked me for encouraging our graduates to drink an alcoholic beverage. <laughs> I wrote her back sweetly and said, ma'am, Red Bull is a caffeinated beverage, not an alcoholic beverage. So amen. <laughs> Read with me in Mark chapter 10, beginning of verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles." They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we would ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that, that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, do you not know what you are asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you should be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Father, in this moment, we bow ourselves before you. Father, we confess that this word is true. It is your word. From the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, to the depths of our heart, all that we are, we believe that to be the case. And Father, we read in this story, not a fanciful tale, but a true interaction between your son and these disciples. And Father, we pray this morning that by faith and by humility, we would perceive and apply what is before us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. An author by the name of S.I. McMillan, in his book, None of These Diseases, he tells the story of a young woman who wanted to go to college. And evidently, she, was, she would be the first in her family to ever go to college. And her parents had saved and worked to provide the resources for her to go to college. And so it was with this heightened sense of expectation that she made application to the college that, that she wanted to attend. And as she was filling out the application with her parents, she was ticking through it and everything was going just fine until she got to a question on the application that stated this, are you a leader? And this young lady was vexed because she was conscientious. She wanted to be, be honest and her parents were vexed too because they were conscientious and wanted her to be honest. And their daughter was much, she, was, she made good grades, evidently she was dutiful, she was sweet. She's just the type of young lady you'd want at a college, but she had never been confused as being a leader. And so she honestly wrote on the application, no, and then sent it in and waited and expected the worst. A couple weeks later, she received this letter back from the college. Dear applicant, a study of our application forms reveals that this year our college will have accepted 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we felt it is imperative that these new leaders have at least one follower. (laughs) There's a parable in that, is it not? That ours is the age of leadership. Ours is the age of leadership. Your local bookstores are overrun by shelves of books on leadership, conferences on leadership, materials on leadership, classes on leadership, workshops on leadership, podcasts on leadership. Everyone wants to be a leader. Now, the point is not that we ought not to aspire to be faithful in the stewardship God has entrusted to us. The point is not we ought not aspire to lead others faithfully. That's not the point at all. But the point is this, our generation seems to be disoriented by this hyper-focus on leadership. In his farewell address to the nation, President Dwight Eisenhower in 1961 warned the people in this land that we not fall prey to a military-industrial complex, that due to the resources and the focus and the war machine that it began to disorient the country and become the tail that wags the dog. I fear the church has succumbed to the leadership-industrial complex. A mentality where everything is to be measured, everything is to be assessed, 
Pragmatic accomplishments are prioritized over spiritual transformation. And we find ourselves with many in the pulpit who are more attuned to leadership theories and organizational processes than to being able to open and handle the divine word of God. What is true in our society ought not be true in the church. Amen? And what our society and our generation values in leader by way of stature and communication abilities and following and platform and all the rest of all people, we ought to be able to right-size that, to put it in its place, to not prioritize that over spiritual growth and gospel transformation. So this morning in these verses, what I want to do is just walk through them with you. And my goal is not so much to tweak the way you view leadership. My goal is not so much to, you know, to, to slightly adjust the way you view leadership, but hopefully from this passage to eclipse it, to transcend it, to reframe us altogether, because this passage teaches us if we have eyes to see that the kingdom is paradoxical. The kingdom is often counterintuitive. The kingdom is often antithetical to the, the world's way of doing things. Jesus is about to say that the way up is the way down. The way to advance is through submission. The way to climb is to stoop. The road to success in the kingdom is often marked by sacrifice, service, and even suffering. That is the paradox of the kingdom. That is the way of the kingdom. Now, we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark, in, in this middle section, that really is a powerful section. We find ourselves in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus now, for the third time, in as many chapters, is spoken to his disciples bluntly about what is before him. So let your eyes fall. fall. Let's say, look at Mark chapter 8. And I hope you have your Bibles with you or a device you can keep on and just, just keep it there before you. Mark chapter 8, for context, Jesus begins, we're told, by, by feeding the 4,000, verses 1 down through verse 21, and then, and then he heals the blind man. And then in verse 27, this great epic scene, Peter declares who Christ is. And then notice verse 31. Jesus, we're then told, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him because that was not according to Peter's plan. Jesus has spoken plainly to them. We've reflected in recent days on this suffering that we see described here in the passage. How did Jesus know what would befall him? Perhaps just through simple divine omniscience, which he enjoyed. Perhaps as one who was a student of the Scriptures and knew the Old Testament not just through personal study of the Old Testament, but because the fact he is the subject of the Old Testament. Perhaps as one who's familiar with Roman style of execution, which was so common in Jesus's time of crucifixion. But it's clearly more than that because Jesus speaks with a specificity here, with so much specificity that some liberal uh, scholars have argued that, that this is like written back in, that Jesus is not speaking proleptically here, but this is written back in. And of course, we would reject that. Jesus speaks here and warns his disciples about what is before him, and it is a way of suffering and a way of death and indeed a way of resurrection. He then tells his disciples, and to Peter, he rebukes Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. And then he talks about if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, etc., etc. Chapter 9, we see the transfiguration, and then in verse 30, 
through 31, we see again Jesus speaking, Jesus foreshadowing his death. From there they went and began to go through Galilee, verse 30 of chapter 9. And he did not want any one to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them that the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later, verse 32. But again, the disciples don't under ask, don't understand, and they are afraid to ask him. Come to chapter 10. Jesus teaches on divorce. He blesses the children. Then he has this famous exchange with the rich young ruler. And now in verse 32, for a third time, he begins to speak to them plainly about what is before him. You see? Then notice verse 33. Jesus says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. They're going up, and they're not a reference to, 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 you're going up to Jerusalem whether you're traveling north or south because Jerusalem is higher elevation. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. So a third time in as many chapters, Jesus speaks to them bluntly about what is coming and is coming soon. And Jesus has braced himself and he is bracing themselves or instructing them to brace themselves. Now notice verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Perhaps the most insensitive question ever asked in the history of humanity. Their Lord has just said he is about to suffer and be mocked and beaten and spat upon and killed. And their response is this childish question. Now, all who have had children as parents have probably encountered something like the question in verse 35. It's a childish question, Daddy, would you, would you say yes to what I'm going to ask you before I ask you? It's this on the front end wanting this assurance, this assurance of a yes. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. One of the most insensitive, juvenile, arrogant requests in the history of humanity. That's where their hearts are. It is shocking, is it not? A shocking contrast that these two who are so close to Christ with whom Jesus has ministered, they've seen the miracles, they've heard the teaching, they've beheld it all. In their hearts, they see a movement they want to get ahead of, a prey they want to be in front of. And when positions are distributed in the kingdom, would you grant to us that we be placed with you, one to your right and one to your left. Grant it be so. Grant it be so. Here on display for us is the great contrast between the way of the world and the way of the kingdom. This great contrast between how man and humanity and and our fallen state so often think versus the way of the kingdom. So what do we see here about, about the way of the kingdom? Jesus would say to us, those of us who would serve in his kingdom, he would say to us, First of all, we must be prepared to suffer for the kingdom. Notice verse 38. 
Notice Jesus' response. And by the way, I'm intentionally referring to this as for the kingdom. Jesus here speaking about the kingdom. So this is not a statement about those in the room who are engaged in or intend to be engaged in vocational ministry. It's a statement for all of us. If you're a child of God, if you're a son or daughter of God, he's speaking to us here. And he says to his disciples, first and foremost, you must be ready. Notice verse 38. Jesus said to him, you do not know what you are asking. This is a question you're presenting to me about being identified with me and placed in in, in the penultimate seat, the second greatest seat, and then the third greatest seat, right to my right and my left. That's what you want, but, but you have no idea what you're asking. Why? Notice verse 38. It says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What are these expressions? This is not a reference to, you know, the Lord's Supper chalice and being dunked in the Jordan River, not at all. It's a reference to suffering on both counts. Drinking the cup is a biblical metaphor for suffering. Remember, for instance, in the garden when, when Jesus prayed, Father, if it is thy will, let this cup pass from me. Or to be, to be baptized is a biblical uh, idiom for being immersed in the suffering. And so he's saying, are you willing to drink this cup of suffering? Are you, are you able to be baptized into my sufferings, to be baptized into the suffering of Christ? It's a picture of Christ's active and passive obedience himself of suffering, actively taking the cup and choosing to lay down his life and passively allowing himself to be nailed to the tree. Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're asking. So he states it bluntly. Then notice verse 39. If the question to be seated at the right and left was one of the most arrogant questions in the history of humanity, one of the most insensitive questions in the history of humanity, verse 39 is one of the, the great overestimations in the history of humanity. Notice verse 39. said to him, we are able. Dunametha, we are capable. We are able. We are powerful. Now what we're going to find in the final analysis is through the crucible of the cross, they are far from it. When Christ is raised and they are empowered and through the power of the Spirit, these two disciples do stand strong, right? We know that James is put to death, Acts 12 tells us, by the sword from Herod. Of course, we know John is exiled on the island of Patmos, not a resort island, but a prison island. Basically, that's where he's placed. So both of these disciples will indeed taste the cup, experience the baptism, just as Jesus predicts. Verse 39, in fact, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. What's he saying here? He's saying to his two disciples, and he's saying through Jesus, through this to us, he's saying, folks, it's about to get real. James and John, it's about to get real. So far, it's been pretty scintillating. You see me walk on water. You see me heal the lame. You see me feed the multitudes. I have bewildered even the best teachers in the land. So far, it's been exhilarating. But it's about to take a turn. It's about to take a turn in a very real way that's going to require real hardship 
and even real suffering and even real death. One of the challenges of a ministry at Midwestern Seminary for those of us who serve here and students who study here, we're in an imperfect place, we all know that, but we are a little bit of a bubble in that we are a Christian community where everyone here believes the Bible and the gospel and loves the church and loves the Great Commission, and we try to be nice to one another. We're not always perfect about that, but we try to be gracious to one another and to act Christianly with one another and for our kids who are around to, to be a part of this community. And there's a sweetness and a joy, but we look up and we look around and we see a world in great need. We see a culture darkening by the hour. We look to a future where we see, unless revival comes to our nation, a future where not just to minister in Jesus' name, but to be identified with Jesus. And the truths of Scripture will likely bring suffering. A few years, actually more than a few years ago now, about 15 years ago, sheesh, my wife and I were, um, were, uh, were in a... Sheesh is an appropriate theological term. Sheesh. <laughs> My wife and I were, uh, were in uh, Washington, D.C., and we were there for a little event, and it was in the waning weeks of the Bush administration, George W. Bush. And uh, we were there for a, a, a conference we were attending and, and, and were a part of. And anyway, we, we had some free time. And this was in that window after the election where um, Barack Obama defeated John McCain, but before President Obama's inauguration. So it was kind of a dead couple of months between election and inauguration. And uh, I had a friend in the, in the Bush White House who offered to give us like, you know, private tour of the White House. And that sounded really cool, right? And so love to do that. What, was it real confident I would have a similar friend in the Obama administration? So it felt like I needed to take advantage of this opportunity. And, uh, and so anyway, Karen and I were there and it was a Saturday and we were going to get to go in and, 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 uh, and be a part of this. Well, you may recall in the fall of 08 about this time that the world was experiencing the, the, the global, the Great Recession, this financial meltdown. Okay, so, so while we were there, um, the city, D.C., was preparing for, for a, a G20 summit. The G20 are the 20 largest economies in, in the industrial democratic world. And so all of these, these heads of government were going to come to Washington, not just like heads of finance, but heads of government were coming to Washington to be there for this G20 summit during the middle of this economic meltdown. So we're there, not a part of the G20, we're, we're there, and, uh, and, and we're going get to this, get this tour of the White House. So we're ecstatic about it. Our t- tour is slated for like 3 o'clock on a Saturday. We're told where to be at 2.45, the gate, which gate we're to go to, and we had to send in information you know, several weeks in advance for a background check and to make it all official, and, and so like, we're really jazzed about this. Well, the city is on lockdown. It's always on lockdown in Washington, D.C., but with this G20 summit and all these heads of government coming, I mean, it is doubly locked down everywhere. Well, we're going to tour the White House, so you know, we're wearing our Sunday best, we're excited about this, and so we are just about where we need to be, the gate we're to go to at the White House to check in and be escorted into the White House to meet, our, to meet the gym that's going to give us a tour. So we're there, it's like 2.45, I said, sweetie, we need, we need to go ahead and walk across the street. Well, that moment, it begins to rain cats and dog. I mean, it is just, it just, just boom, begins to pour. And it is pouring. I mean, pouring like yesterday morning. I mean, it's just coming down. And we don't have an umbrella. We don't have ponchos. We don't have anything. And we're underneath this, this, this pass covering. And we have to walk one block up to get to the gate. And, and I, I just don't get, you don't go to the White House drenched. And so I said, we're just going to wait it out. We're going to wait it out. So we're waiting. It's like 250 we're waiting, 252 we're waiting, 
254 we're waiting, and I'm just like, what do you do? You know, if you're late, do you forfeit this opportunity? But I don't want to go in drenched, don't want to get wet. So finally, like at 258, I mean, it just the rain stops as abruptly as it started. So I grab my wife's hand, I say, Look, we, let's dash now. So just as I, we begin to dash up the street, we got to go, we begin to hear this massive clanging. I mean, it sounds like a mob scene noise coming in. Like, what, what is going on? Well, as we begin to walk up the street to get to our gate, coming towards us the opposite direction is this massive protest march. And so what had happened is with the G20 summit, it brought out some of the protesters. So this is a massive protest march. And they're marching um, to, to, to protest, in their terms, marriage inequality. So you know what that means. And so we have, from the news that night, I learned about 5,000 people activists coming and protesting marriage inequality, and they're all marching this way. And we're like Ward and June Cleaver. You know, we're like, there we are in the middle of this, and I grab my wife's hand, and I say, just follow me. And we are making our way as it was up current to get to this gate we had to get to, and we are bobbing and weaving, and all the chants, and all the signs, and all the scenes, and everything being said and yelled going that way. And in that moment, I felt, this is a metaphor of ministry in the 21st century. And we didn't really suffer that day. We were inconvenienced, but there was no suffering. But what is taking place in our land in 2023, and no doubt will intensify every day more, especially as we continue to go into greater and greater fringes of the sexual revolution, is this. A people who say the Bible is the word of God and we are bound by it. And we believe that marriage, for instance, is a covenantal conjugal union between a man and a woman created by God and intended for life. And as you hold to that, and not just that, but other biblical truths, and as you hold to that, we will be increasingly a people going upstream with the current and the pressure going against us. And we should know, we must know that that no doubt, no doubt will bring suffering one day for us, for you. Jesus says, we must be ready. We must be ready. Notice with me secondly, and we'll pick up speed here, that not just to be prepared to suffer for the kingdom, but notice secondly, we must be submitted to the plan of the kingdom. Notice verse 40. Jesus says, verse 39, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. You shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Verse 40. But to sit on my right... Or on my left, this is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. What's he saying here? Jesus is reminding us that that God is not just a master planner. He's a micromanager. In his kingdom, in his church, throughout this cosmos, within this chapel, in your life and calling, where you will serve, where you will work, whatever it is, God has a perfect plan he is working out. And he's given each one of us strengths and weaknesses, giftings and talents, skills and experiences, opportunities, and all the rest. And our responsibility is not to make our way through life and seeing it as one massive ladder we're seeking to climb, but to make our way through life trying to discern and follow God's call for our lives. 
Matthew 16 teaches us that Christ is building his church. Ephesians 4 tells us that Christ has gifted his church with servants, including pastors and and, and teachers and, and, and evangelists. And so with all of us in the room today and those watching beyond the room, if you're in Christ, you're part of that perfect plan. And he knows you. And he doesn't need your resume to put you where he wants you. He knows you. He doesn't need you to like grow your social media following to a point that he can then use you. He knows you and he will place you. He knows you and he delights in using you. He knows you and he has a plan for your life that even if you could providentially engineer your own plan, it would not be as good as the plan he has for your life because his plan is perfect, unimprovable. What does this mean for us today? I think it means that we need to understand that we live in a generation of rampant self-promotion. Jesus is saying here, not only is that not the spiritual thing to do, it is an unnecessary thing to do, you see? He knows you. He knows your calling. He gave it to you. He knows how he wants to use you. He knows how he will use you. He knows where he will place you. For some of us, this is a word not to be self-promoting. For others of us, it's a word not to be anxious. And look, I get it. Many in seminary, there's, there's a season of transition. You're wondering what comes after graduation, what comes after the MDiv degree, what comes after college. This season where it feels like you're at the dawn of life and adulthood is there and you're about to step out and go. And I say to you, it's appropriate to pray. It's appropriate even to wonder. It's appropriate even to ask, but don't become anxious. He who knows you, who created you, who called you, who loves you, there is no reason for anxiety to well up in your heart. Additionally, there is no need to overthink. Don't overthink. Some people spend all their time wondering what they're going to do with their life. Meanwhile, that was what just happened their life. Step through the doors God has opened for you. Happily serve where he's placed you. Don't overthink. Don't try to over-engineer your life. I think this also is a reminder to us of the appropriate nature of some self-authenticity. It's okay not always to look like everything's perfect. It's okay to acknowledge when you bomb a quiz. It's okay to acknowledge when you flub a sermon. It's okay to acknowledge when you don't get a thousand words a day. It's okay to acknowledge whatever it is that's before you that you don't achieve that day or that week. That's okay. I was visiting with a friend of mine recently an old friend, and we, we were together, sadly, at, at a funeral of a, of a mutual friend who'd, who'd passed very tragically. And we got to have dinner at the funerals, whatever, four or five of us there, and we were talking about old times. And then, and then we, we were catching up. And then as we were catching up, we began to think of, of, of a friend or two who, who we had not, who none of us had talked to in a while. And we're talking, and, and I said, well, um, what about him? Is anyone, has anyone heard how he's doing? And like, no one had heard. I said, I thought helpfully, but evidently not that helpful. I said, well, you know, I haven't talked to him in a long time, but from social media, it looks like things are, things are going well for him. And my friend said, Jason, everyone looks like things are going well on social media. He said, if, if you don't look like you're doing okay on social media, you're in a really bad place. <laughs> and it's true. Our world is one where, where we are motivated in ways we don't even detect to be synthetic to be plastic, to be our most presentable, to be the very best version of ourselves. But we don't have to do that to be used by God. In fact, according to this passage, 
the best way to limit our kingdom usage is to pursue such a path of self-promotion and self-presentation. Excuse me, third, verses 41 through 44, the simple call to focus on the way of the kingdom. Jesus said to some of my right or left, it's not mine to divvy out like a victor divvying out spoils. It's for those who've been prepared. Now notice verse 41. Hearing this, the 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. Yeah, you bet. I would, you would, if, if you think you're in this thing together, and then you hear two of the 10 have broken out, and they're trying to cut a side deal with the Lord to put themselves in a position of authority. The other 10 are indignant. So notice what happens in verse 42. Jesus calls them all together, and he speaks to them very bluntly about how the kingdom works. And here we get this profound word of contrast. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. And then comes the beginning of verse 3, this big fat word, B-U-T, but it is not this way among you. Gentiles, of course, is shorthand reference for unbelievers. Those, a part of the world system, who make their living by the world system, who operate within the world system, who manipulate the world system, and who benefit from the world system, there is a way they operate. And they operate by accumulating authority and by working, in essence, to be on the top of a pyramid. That is their way. Verse 43, but it is not that way among you. Folks, isn't that sweet? Isn't that a rebuke? Isn't it liberating that the kingdom of Christ is so countercultural, counterintuitive, that, 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 that it is the antithesis of the world's way of operating? This is not like... Jesus undermining you know, organizational charts around the globe, that's not it. Structure is appropriate, accountability is appropriate. But the mentality, yes, he indeed is undermining around the globe. It's not this way among you. Not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Servant, a person who willingly sacrifices for others, a slave here, a bond slave, a person who has forfeited their own rights. And so Jesus is saying, the, the way of the world is a pyramid, but the way of the kingdom is in an inverted pyramid. There's an inverted topography in the kingdom. You see? That's how the kingdom operates. I reflect on this passage in recent days. My mind kept going to our community here. So many who are so gifted, who serve so generously. And uh, I, I, I would not begin to venture names in this moment because I would leave out so many capable servants. But Jim, I just want to say to you in this community, your whole division serves so well. And um, the, the servant heartedness, the attention to detail, the care for the facilities, the campus, the people, um, they are instructive to all of us as to what it means to serve. Notice with me, verse 45. Notice this final call here. And it is a call simply to imitate the king of the kingdom. For even the son of man, he did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom 
for many, for many, for many. What's going on here? Jesus, first of all, is taking and applying this directly to himself. I, the son of man, and by the way, this isn't just like, oh, shucks, I'm just the son of man. No, the son of man, you read the book of Daniel, it's, it's, a, it's a title of dignity of power. The son of man himself did not come to accumulate servants, but he came to serve. And then notice how this whole text comes together with the final word of punctuation and to give his life a ransom for many. This is not an argument for the ransom theory. I won't get into that this morning, but Jesus is saying that through my vicarious death, I will redeem, I will purchase, I will buy my life. I will gain salvation for many. There's a breath to that that is beautiful. There's a sacrifice to that that is unspeakable. There's a givenness to that that is exemplary, and that is our Lord, who takes them through this conversational journey where he begins by talking about what is ahead of them and himself in Jerusalem. He has to deal with their shenanigans of self-promotion, has to deal with their bitterness amongst the 12, and he takes them and explains them the way of the kingdom, then he brings it back to himself, not in a way, obviously, of self-promotion, but to say, what I just said is going to happen about my sacrifice in Jerusalem is going to happen, and you will see through that moment that the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what about you? What about us? There's nothing more countercultural than being like Christ. There's nothing more attractive than reflecting the grace of Christ. There's nothing more inviting than demonstrating the Spirit of Christ working through you. And all of that is counterculture, counterintuitive. Our world is a world that's always on the lookout for Saul's. But let us be content. Let us be determined to be like Jesse's youngest son. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this passage, how rich indeed it is. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us this week, especially as we look at just a few remaining weeks in the semester. Strengthen us to teach, to study, to serve, to do all that you've called us to do here. And to do it with hearts like we see here in Mark chapter 10. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.